Our Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, asking for your special blessing upon us here this morning, that as we focus on the events described in this chapter in the book of Genesis, that you will open the door of understanding in our hearts and minds and help us to grasp the truths that are there, not only for their historical value, but for the impact that they can make upon our lives today. Because we know, Lord, that your word never outdates. And the truths of Genesis are the same truths that apply to us today. And so, Father, may we grow through our study of the word. And may we truly uh, then use the word of God, which is in our hearts and minds, to guide our thoughts and guide our actions and to make us more powerful witnesses for you to those around us who need you. We ask, Lord, that you will defeat every effort of the enemy to bring hindrance here this morning, and we ask that your name will be exalted. In Christ's name, amen. Now, Genesis chapter 9. I'd like for us to read the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast will I require it. And from every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, he, for in the image of God he was made. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Interesting words, particularly as we look out today and we recognize the fact that there are many organizations out there trying to tell us to not populate the world, that we have done it too well. But uh, looking at the time we're talking about, the population was pretty slight, obviously, in those moments. These verses record information and instruction that God gave to Noah and his family as they're leaving the ark and going out now to populate the virgin earth. Just think about it now. The entire planet's surface has been reconstituted. The geography has been transformed. Uh, things are not what they were before, either in the atmosphere or on the surface of the planet. Major changes have transpired. And I think it's important for us to notice the things that I have numbered for you there on the outline. First of all, Noah and his family were commanded to multiply and to fill the earth. You remember that this commandment was given before. It was given in the first chapter of Genesis, where God spoke those words to Adam and to Eve, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, they did. And the earth, of course, became filled with violence and evil. 
And so God sent the flood, which wiped out the entire population that had come from Adam and Eve, with the exception of the eight that were on the ark. And we have talked about this uh, through several weeks, and we have studied both the scientific as well as the biblical data related to this. And it's a terrible stretch of the imagination to try to think of it as being anything other than clearly what the Scripture says. To say, well, it was just a local flood and the people in Australia were untouched, and the people in the Americas were untouched. It makes no sense whatsoever to think that way. It's a compromise that doesn't make one either uh, scientific or biblical. You end up in, in, a, in a place in between which is kind of a no-man's land, if you will. Again, let me reassert uh, the fact that science is ever transient. Science is always on the move. Science has not discovered the nth, you know, the last truth. It's constantly fluctuating. And for us to nail anything in Scripture down to a particular theory in science is, is folly because science will repudiate that theory 10, 20 years hence and move on to something else. And so we have to, I believe, by faith, stick, stick to the teaching of Scripture and uh, understand that when all the facts are in and when we really know what the Scripture is saying and what the situation was like that was described, and when science comes up with more facts, I think we discover that rather than the two becoming further apart, they're actually coming closer together. It's reiterated at this point that Noah and his family should repopulate the earth because they're where? They're back to square one now. Well, square eight if you like. There are only eight squares uh, on the planet, and so they have to begin the repopulation. Secondly, they were informed of something by God that was very interesting, I'm sure, to them. And that is that all living creatures would now have a great fear of mankind. It's a worldwide phenomenon that wild creatures are basically afraid of human beings. We have been told, you know, you've been out and and, and you've faced a wild creature and somebody says, remember, it's more afraid of you than you are of it. And sometimes you're not to, so sure about that. But in general, that maxim is true. There are major exceptions, of course, usually un, under unusual conditions. A great drought, of course, can force animals into an area where humans are. Uh, hunger can force an animal to overcome its fear. Uh, Familiarity with human beings can cause an animal to overcome its fear. Uh, disease, rabies, whatever it is, can cause an animal to do something that would not be in accordance with its natural instinct. Apparently, before the flood, even the non-domesticated animals had no particular fear of mankind. Now, that would be fitting, as you would think, uh, in the Garden of Eden, certainly as Adam named all the animals as God brought them to him, that uh, they didn't put, they, there was no fear of him. There was no fear in the garden. There was no fear in the world. There was no reason to have fear. The world was perfect. But as sin came, of course, fear was introduced by the God of fear, Satan himself, little g, God. And 
then at this particular point in time, it seems by implication in Scripture that God instills in the animals a sense of the fear of, an, of mankind for the preservation of both, for the preservation of the animals as well as the preservation of mankind, because obviously as animals go through transitions and, and become more fierce if they're not afraid of mankind, mankind will be in danger. On the other side of the coin, as we discover mankind now is ready, uh, that is given the right to eat animals, the animals will, will be in uh, great danger. So it's a very natural thing for God to do this for the protection of both. Thirdly, as this passage teaches us, God originally had given to man and to animals all of the plant world to eat. It says that specifically in Genesis. Now for us, as we live today, we think, oh, that's, that's really kind of strange because we're used to... Uh, carnivorous activities amongst man and, and animals. But that wasn't the way it was in the beginning, which, of course, is another uh, obvious blow against the concept of evolution. You know, in, in the idea of evolution, it would be natural that creatures would eat other creatures if that were to actually happen. But for everything to be herbivorous, for everything to eat plants only, and nothing to eat another living creature, another animal or insect or something, would not be the natural uh, way one would suspect things would develop. So obviously it required the intervention of God. But now at this point, God has chosen to allow mankind to consume animals. It seems most likely that it is at this time also that God allows the various genetic transformations to take place within the animal world for the carnivorous activities to begin to develop amongst the animals themselves. And now there will be birds, some species of birds and of animals and of insects and of marine forms that will prey on one another. I don't think this happened overnight. I think this, this developed as the genetic code uh, was taken to its nth extremes as God allowed the environmental effects and whatever it is that he personally did to take place to allow these activities to develop. Now the vast majority of creatures in the world today, if you were to list all of the living forms, all of the, let's say, species of insects and animals and birds and so forth, and put them in two lists, those which are herbivorous and those which are omnivorous or carnivorous, you'll discover that the herbivorous list is still by far the longest. The vast majority of creatures that live in this planet still eat plants in some form or another. A smaller portion of them have become herbivorous, uh, have become omnivorous, you know, like a bear, for example. A bear eats vegetation, a bear will also eat meat. Uh, some animals have become almost exclusively carnivorous, and, and basically they will only eat uh, flesh of some sort or another. Now, looking at that and, and what this passage says in Genesis, the question that naturally comes forth here is why? Why did God do this? Why did God decide, I mean, to allow mankind to, to eat meat, to eat animals? And why does he allow the carnivorous condition to develop here on planet Earth? 
Well, the passage doesn't say. You can't say, and it says here, well, because of this, God did this. It doesn't say that. So what we can only do, of course, is try to look at this and to come up with possible explanations, and I have listed a few for you there on your outline. Some of them, I think, are kind of far out. Some of them, I think, are probably pretty close to the major explanations. First of all, and I think one of the primary reasons, was to provide adequate food supplies for what would become a growing population. As I mentioned to you last week, when God changed the climate at the time of the flood and the conditions of the world were modified, when because of massive plate tectonics, if you will, uh, epirogenesis, orogenesis, the uplift of, of continents and the rising of mountains, God changed the, race, the basic elevation uh, relief, if you will, on the surface of the planet. Certainly, this is what happened. I mean, when the floodwaters went away, the, we noted last week that the wind was insufficient to dry the flood up from the earth. What it took was, of course, relative change in the ocean bottoms and in the continents. And as the two shifted, the waters drained off the continents into the ocean basins. And as this condition developed, as we see it in the world today, we now have a world which is 71% water surface and only 29% land surface. Whereas I believe before the flood, the uh, amount of ocean surface was probably fairly minimal. It wasn't necessary as it is now to drive the hydrologic cycle. Today, it, you know, we'd live in a total desert if, if the seas were very much smaller than they are today. But in those days when God had developed a different system for providing adequate water and there was apparently a fairly equitable climate worldwide because of the water vapor canopy that existed in the atmosphere, that uh, vast oceans weren't needed for adequate moisture. But now that's changed and so there's less land service upon which plants would grow and thus there would be insufficient plants to feed all these creatures and therefore, I believe one of the reasons God allowed the carnivorous activity to develop was to adequately feed the creatures, mankind and the other creatures that would develop. Secondly, it could be also to illustrate the, on a daily basis the extent to which death had come to reign on planet Earth by the fact that you eat an animal. Now, most of us probably when we eat a hamburger, we don't have pity on the poor uh, beast that that's body was carved up so we can have a hamburger. But you have to think about in the early stages that this would have been more of a thought, you know, that you have to kill this animal. Now most of us don't have to worry about it because we buy it at the store. But if you go back into the more primitive societies or live as, as some rural people do today and you have to butcher the animal yourself, you're more aware of, of where that meat came from. And in some cases, my, my, my grandmother, she wouldn't touch anything of meat because of that very thought, that an animal had to die, so she, she never for her whole life would eat uh, meat. And, and some people are, are that way. So that's a, a possible explanation, at least a minor explanation for why this took place. Thirdly, Possibly, God allowed this, especially for the animal forms to become, some animal forms to become carnivorous, to check population growth of some forms of life. As you know, some forms of life multiply extremely rapidly. 
And if they're not kept in check by something, they just simply overwhelm an area. And of course, uh, today we hear a lot about, in America, trying to do farming and gardening with uh, natural means of control of insects and diseases rather than spraying something on, uh, on it all the time. And so we import various creatures that eat the creatures that eat our garden or whatever it is. And we can understand that there's a balance that has developed to some degree uh, by this condition. Fourthly, and I think quite importantly, it would help to demonstrate the gulf that exists between mankind and animal forms of life. Today, if you study carefully the evolution of modern sociological thoughts, thought patterns and so forth, you'll discover that the, the teaching of Charles Darwin, which, which produced, or I should say, uh, re-emphasized the, uh, the idea that can be traced clear back into the thinking of the ancient Greeks, that uh, there was, there's been a, an evolution of life. Uh, from the simple to the, to the complex. When you think about that, and you realize that as you follow that philosophy through, it, it's, no reason, it's no wonder that today many view mankind as simply the most advanced of all the animal forms on this world, and he has no more right here than anything else. As I mentioned last week, this guy, I think he's up in Oregon, who started this organization that uh, is advocating that the human race voluntarily die off so that the other creatures on the planet uh, will not be, excuse me? Lead the way. Let him lead the way. Let him lead the way. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, his idea is that we don't reproduce, that we have no children, and therefore, obviously, we will, in one generation or so, pretty well be eliminated from the planet. But that kind of thinking can come out of that kind of philosophy. And the, the whole idea that, uh, you know, that man shouldn't be treated any differently or that we shouldn't deal seriously with some of the problems, sociological problems that come along, I mean, radically with them. I mean, many people are opposed to capital punishment for the very reason that if you trace it back, it, it comes out of this whole evolutionary principle. You know, racism, elitism, uh, so many things along this line uh, they're not new with Darwinistic thinking, but they were greatly encouraged by Darwinistic thinking. And of course, that thinking thoroughly permeated the thinking of Adolf Hitler. And as he developed his whole Nazi SS, uh, that was all premised in partly, at least, Darwinistic thought. And it follows through as you come that way. But when you come to the Scripture, you have a totally different view. Mankind is not simply the peak of the evolutionary pyramid. Mankind is totally separate from the animals. He was created individually, specifically in the image of God. He has certain biological uh, features which are similar to animals because God used the same pattern. But as some have noted, the difference between man and the nearest supposed relative, a primate, the differences are far greater than the similarities, which doesn't really make sense if evolution has really occurred. There ought to be a lot of transitional f creatures in between that have modifications that are, you know, not that great. But obviously, that's not so because God made man totally separately 
and has nothing to do with the animal kingdom in terms of a biological uh, relationship. The image of God is very important to remember relative to mankind. And then lastly, and of course questionably, was God simply validating a practice that was already being carried on? Were people before the flood already eating animals? Well, they were violating all kinds of other uh, prohibitions that God had put into effect, so why not that one? You, you would think it wouldn't take very much from the fact that animals were sacrificed very early in the history of mankind. They were burned on the altar as an offering to, to move to the idea of actually eating a part of that offering and thus discovering that man could consume animals. Several years ago, I talked with a man who was uh, basically, uh, biology was his area of expertise, and he was saying, when you, all you have to do is look at human dentition, human teeth. And as you study human teeth, you discover they are, they are not teeth that were primarily made for the purpose of being carnivorous. They are teeth that are associated with a herbivorous type uh, uh, diet, not with a carnivorous type diet. Obviously, human teeth can uh, do both, but primarily uh, they are, they rep reflect a herbivorous uh, orientation. Another factor relative to this uh, giving of meat to be eaten is that other restrictions would eventually come, and, we, we'll see, and you see those as you look at the Mosaic Law. But at this time, there's only one restriction placed upon meat-eating, and that was upon the eating of meat with the blood in it, and eating of the blood. This was prohibited. Man was not to eat unbled meat, nor was he to eat blood itself. Why? Well, here it does say why. In this passage, it says, talking about going on, talking about the lifeblood being required if a man is slain, it's indicative of the very source and, and uh, being of, of the creature. Blood is a symbol of life. Blood was the symbol of life. As such, it became sacred because God so ordained it to be. Blood symbolized the atonement. Blood symbolizes the atonement. We sing, there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And as you sing many, many songs that are sung within the church, you discover blood, specifically the blood of Christ, is frequently the subject of that particular song or included in the song. The blood thus became the symbol of atonement, the atonement that would come through Jesus Christ as he would give his blood on the cross. Let me uh, read to you uh, a verse from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The blood was crucial. In the program that God established, 
he so ordained to be. And therefore, to profane it by, by just eating it as if it were nothing would be to downgrade what it stood for in the eternal plan of God. I don't have this on your outline, but I'd like to read a passage to you that you're familiar with from Acts chapter 15. Some have asked the question, well, you know, does the Old Testament teaching here still apply in New Testament times or in our day? If you remember, in Acts chapter 15, we have the account of the, of the Jerusalem Council. There was kind of a stir because as Paul preached the gospel, many Gentiles came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and sometimes following Paul around a few months later would be some Judaizing Christians who would come in and say, look, you guys have only got half the gospel. In order to have the whole gospel, you need to realize that you've got to obey the law of Moses. You've got to become circumcised. You, in effect, have to become a Jew before you can accept the Jewish Messiah. Now, Paul did not teach that. And so there was a, a bit of friction there. And so they met in Jerusalem, some say around the year 50, and uh, they dealt with this. And ultimately, they came to an agreement under leadership of James the Just as to what ought to, to be imposed upon the Gentiles who came to know Christ. And this is the letter which they sent. And at the end of the letter, verses 28 and 29, we see these words. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you will keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well, farewell. Now, a lot of things could be argued about that, but you do have to realize that it's put in parallel with fornication. And we know God has not lifted his law on fornication, his teachings concerning that. And so by implication, it could be seen that the prohibition upon the eating of blood still stands. Secondly, we realize that simply from the health point of view, that unbled meat spoils very rapidly. And thus, you know, refrigeration is a relatively new phenomenon. You think about all of history and how refrigeration was not available except to, you know, the Eskimos or somebody. And we realize that this is a very, very important uh, teaching. You know, back in the, oh, uh, 18th century and so forth, uh, people were actually willing to kill for the possession of pepper. Why? Because the one way to make meat which was past its prime <laughs> tolerable was to season it very heavily in days when there was no refrigeration. And, and, and so this, be, this became very important. So we can understand that from a health point of view, to, to make sure blood, uh, meat is fully bled would be important. And then uh, thirdly, blood carries disease organisms. The, the blood, the little rivers that run through us, bear the disease organisms back and forth. And so they do through the animal. And so to partake of the blood is to, you know, subject oneself to possible infection, particularly in days when... Uh, you might eat the blood uncooked. There are some tribes in Africa today, which you're probably familiar with, and all they do is whack open a vein and drink it, let it heal up again uh, on their cattle. 
it's kind of sick when you think about it. I mean, at least from my point of view it is. But it's also unhealthy. A fourth major factor now, going back to the main part of the outline, is that in verses 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 9, the sacredness of human life is emphasized. Human beings cannot be slain with impunity as you might slay a cow or a donkey or a sheep. Human life is sacred. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again of Genesis 9. And surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. God would call every human being and every animal into account, it says in this passage, for the slaying of a human being. God clearly delegates the authority to do this, as you read in this passage. The authority to deal out justice to the point of capital punishment was given to mankind by God himself. Men and women everywhere on this planet, whether they be pygmies in Africa or aborigines in Australia, or, or whether they be you and I, such people were made in the image of God, and they all possess eternal souls. Now, that hasn't always been the attitude of mankind. If you study something of the history of South Africa, which, of course, has been in the news a whole lot in the last few years, you'll discover that when the Dutch came to South Africa around 1650, and, and they began to move inland, they encountered the Hottentots. The Hottentots are kind of a short... Uh, golden-skinned people who live largely in the Namib desert and the uh, surrounding areas. And the Dutch decided that these Hottentots were not human. And therefore, they violated every teaching in the Scripture relative to them. They practiced miscegenation with them, and even though, of course, they, they, you know, these, these Dutch people were Reformed. You know, they were Calvinists. And uh, so what they had to do was, was, in order to live within their church system and their theology and still do what they did, was to treat the Hottentots as a creature and, and not as a human being. And so they did all of these things. And, of course, today you have a large population of what called the Cape Colored uh, in uh, South Africa, which are at least partially a product of that miscegenation. And also, of course, they killed them with impunity if, if they were in their way. Because, you see, they didn't have souls. And, and in many societies, you'll discover that uh, many primitive societies, the men don't consider the women of their societies to possess souls. And thus, they can do what they want with them. And, and so it goes. But the Scripture clearly uh, teaches that the human race, from Adam and Eve to today, male and female, whatever, a people group you're talking about, we're all made in the image of God. We are all of one people. And that human life is sacred in God's eyes. I'd like to read from, Genesis, uh, from Exodus chapter 20, first verse 13. We know this very well, don't we? One of the Ten Commandments. Thou 
shalt, here in this version, you shall not murder. That's specifically what it says there. King James Version says, thou shalt not kill. And some people have used the term kill in the broadest sense of the term. But the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew here means murder. Means to go out and purposely intend to kill somebody because that person's a pain to you in some way, shape, or form. Is not a prohibition against war because that is an act of justice, hopefully. That's been argued, of course, through the centuries by the theologians. But look at 21, verse 12. Exodus 21, 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. In other words, this is simply explaining what it means when it says thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. Uh, if somebody is killed by accident, not because somebody planned, premeditated the destruction of this person, then there was the option, option of being able to flee to a city of refuge. And later on, as the Israelites came into the land, they were to establish cities of refuge across the land on, on both the Transjordan side and uh, on the west side of the Jordan River, to which those who killed accidentally or maybe in a, in a moment's rage, but not premeditated, uh, were able to, to flee. Then in uh, verse 28 of Exodus 21, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned. Its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. Romans 13. A lot of argument has gone on down through the centuries as to the authority of governments of mankind, particularly as relative to things like capital punishment. Romans 13.3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now, a lot of things, of course, can be said. And we can say, oh, yes, sure, our government is always just, right? Uh, our government always does good to the people who do good and evil to the people who do evil. No, of course not. A government is not perfect. A government is comprised of human beings who make errors, human, human beings who can come to a position of power as the proverbial or the real, actually, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and a whole long list of other uh, individuals who have perpetrated violence and evil. That does not set aside God's original, original uh, statement. All authority comes from the hands of the Almighty. Now, why he allows a Joseph Stalin to rule as long as he allowed Joseph Stalin to rule for 30 years, I don't know. But that doesn't abrogate or mean that God's authority was abrogated. And it doesn't mean that as believers we should not be in obedience to the government that is over us. 
as long as that government does not demand of us to violate what we know to be the express word of God. You know, if the government demands us to, to, to slay our children because we have too, much, too many people in the population, obviously you wouldn't obey such a law. Just as Daniel refused to obey the law which said he couldn't pray without permission of the king because he was following a higher law. But we dare not invent a higher law and say, well, my law says I don't have to pay, give my money to the IRS because they use it to uh, finance this and that and the other thing which I don't agree with. No, we don't have that right. Remember, Jesus told uh, his disciples to go down to the sea and get the fish, and out of the fish's mouth they pulled the money, and that money was paid to the government of Rome, and if there was ever a government that, that was corrupt in history, the government of Rome often was very corrupt. And as the Roman legions marched uh, into new countries to conquer them, they weren't always gentle, kind, sweet soldiers who just said, sorry, but we'd like to appropriate your land, right? No. They butchered people and they raped and they pillaged. And yet, nevertheless, taxes were paid by God's people to such a government. The sword is not born in vain. And that is true today as it has always been. The scripture clearly teaches that man, that the one who sheds man's blood, premeditatedly, purposefully, uh, that blood is to be shed. And that's never been changed throughout the history of God's Word. These verses, of course, anticipate that human governments would be established. Let me read to you the words of commentators Kylan Delich relative to this. If murder was to be punished with death because it destroyed the image of God in man, it is evident that the infliction of the punishment was not to be left to the caprice of individuals, but belonged to those alone who represent the authority and majesty of God, that is, the divinely appointed rulers. This command then laid the foundation for all civil government and formed a necessary complement to that unalterable continuance of the order of nature which had prompted had been promised to the human race for its further development. If God, on the account of the innate sinfulness of man, would no more bring an exterminating judgment upon the earthly creation, it was necessary that by commands and authorities he should erect a barrier against the supremacy of evil, and thus lay the foundation for a well-ordered civil development of, him of humanity. In accordance with the words of the blessing which are repeated in verse 7 as showing the intention and goal of this new historical beginning. Now, human governments have not been perfect just as you and I are not perfect here today. How many of us are, are, would be, you know, just at a moment's notice, glad to choose any one of the of other of us in this, in this room to be president of the United States if we had that power? Do, do we have enough faith in each of us as individuals to believe that uh, all of us could hold that position of power and authority? I don't think so. Um, we are commanded in Scripture to pray for those that are in authority over us, and I, we're probably quite remiss about that. And uh, sometimes we end up with the kind of leadership we have because we fail in that uh, particular area. And 
whether or not we can say so-and-so as President of the United States or so-and-so as King or Queen of this country is God's sovereign choice to rule that people with justice, the ultimate authority rests in his hands. All authority comes from the hand of God. Without God's hand, there is no authority. But sometimes God allows us to have what we deserve. And so we end up with the kind of leadership we have sometimes, not because that's what God would have given to us in all of his mercy and justice and wisdom, but because in our folly, that's what we have chosen. God allows us to choose according to our folly, does he not? Let's look at uh, chapter 9, verse 8 of Genesis. Genesis 9, 8. Then God spoke to Moses and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall, be, and it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This particular passage, which we have just read, gives to us God's irrevocable commitment to mankind. He made a covenant. Now, the covenant was the most secure form of promise possible. It's important for us to know that God made this covenant unilaterally. That is, the covenant was made between God and mankind and the earth regardless of the actions or the commitment of mankind. In other words, he did not require mankind to make a commitment and he didn't require mankind to follow a certain course of action in order for this covenant to be carried into effect. Now, that is not true of every covenant. As you go through the, the book of Genesis and other parts of Scripture, you discover many covenants are not unilateral. Most of them, in fact, are not. They are bilateral. God promises to do this if mankind will do that. Therefore, they are conditional. This is not conditional. This covenant is stated flat out, and God will follow through regardless of what people do. He will never again destroy this planet by a flood. As we noted last time, it'll be by fire next time. Comforting, isn't it? <laughs> the Abrahamic covenant would be the one that would follow in, in line with the Noahic covenant. 
this, this Noahic covenant was laying the foundation for what would actually be a more important covenant as far as the development of salvation on this planet is concerned. Now, almost always, covenants are sealed with a tangible reminder. A pile of rocks, an altar, in the case of the Abrahamic uh, uh, covenant, circumcision. In this particular case, the so-called Noahic covenant, it is sealed with the sign of the bow in the sky. And the Hebrew word here is simply bow. It, it, bow like an archer uses. I put my bow in the sky. And of course, by implication, we know that it refers to the rainbow. God is saying by that bow that he would never again destroy the life on planet Earth with a great flood. Now think about that for a minute. To believe that the flood of Noah's day was local and not universal makes God out a liar here. To say that it had nothing to do with the Aborigines in Australia or, or the Indians who lived in the Americas, that they, didn't, you know, that they were not involved in this, that uh, they went on their merry way and it was only a local flood, makes this whole thing that God is saying here absurd. Because floods have come in the years since this time. And hundreds of thousands of people have been killed, even in our lifetime. What was it, 1970, the great flood in Bangladesh, which carried away 300,000 people? And there have been floods in China on the lower uh, Yellow River that have killed millions. So if this simply means that there never will be a flood sent to destroy human beings, then it's absurd, then God's a liar because it's happened lots and lots of times. What he is saying is there never will begin, again, be a universal flood which will wipe out the entire human race. That's what he's saying, and that's, of course, specifically understandable. We know that has never happened again, which by implication it means it did happen before, clearly. Now, why does God put a rainbow in the sky as a symbol? Why does God do that? Why doesn't God just say, look, I said it, you better believe it? Why does he give something as a sign? Well, God knew there would be great storms that would come, hurricanes, cyclones, that would be very, very frightening to especially the human race in the first few generations after the flood. And, uh, you know, they were still kind of nervous about the whole thing. Uh, and, and so God says, in order to reassure you, I will put my bow in the sky, and that will always be a reminder of the promise which I have made to never again destroy the earth with a flood. The rainbow, beautiful, beautiful thing. There's no pot of gold at the end of it, but there's a whole lot more valuable than a pot of gold. It reminds us of at least two things about God. It reminds us of God's faithfulness. If God said it, that's the way it is and will be. It's unalterable. And God has perpetuated his sign to always remind us of his faithfulness. As I studied that, it reminded me, and I didn't put it on the outline because I was just thinking about it this morning, of the passage in Lamentations 3, which, which tells us that, what, that God's blessings are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And, of course, we sing the song based on that particular passage in, in Lamentations. Not only does it remind us of God's faithfulness, but of God's mercy. 
The covenant is unconditional. God's mercy on the human race was without requiring mankind to respond in any way. Mankind could be as evil as he wished to be, yet God will not again send a flood to destroy human life as he did in the days of Noah. The word covenant is used in this passage seven times. Obviously, it's an important word. It had only been used once before in the book of Genesis. Suddenly, it's used seven times in one passage. God is preparing the way for other covenants that will come along, whereby he will commit himself to mankind for the purpose of bringing his plan of action into reality and to bring hope. You've all been hearing a lot about the reasons for the great chaos in Los Angeles and other places, and commentators and experts have all given their opinion. But it seems that at the root of it, one of the major causes is hopelessness. So many people who live in these in interior, inner city areas are hopeless. They have no hope, no, no opportunity, as they see it at least, to achieve the American dream. God is in the business of giving hope. God is faithful and God is merciful to give hope. God established covenants to give hope. God sent Jesus to give us hope. And if we have hope, we have reason to live, don't we? I think about this every, every once in a while. If all I was living for, pardon me, but we just had a, a group of elder hostelers come through the college, two groups actually, and elder hostel is not a Christian organization. It's a secular organization. And you're not allowed to blatantly uh, proselytize uh, amongst these people. But, you know, through your life, uh, hopefully they, they see Christ. But a lot of these people, they just run from pillar to post and place to place, fighting aging, you know, trying to uh, slow aging process down. And, and what hope do they have? Many of them have no hope at all. But some of them think they're going to be reincarnated as, you know, some more wonderful being later on down the line. Or, or, or some, uh, you know, they have all kinds of weird ideas. Some of them are Christians, but uh, they, they don't really have hope. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I know the Lord and am not in their particular position. But that should cause us to reach out to people like that, at least in prayer. And we do pray for these people. And of course, we all know people like that. My mother lives in a mobile home park in Southern California where there are 96 other coaches in that park. And in the time they live in, have lived in that park, almost every single coach has seen a death or two because it's a retirement community. And most of those people don't have the time of day for God, and they die without hope. And you just think how sad it is. And yet when you think about that, and whenever you see a rainbow, just not only remember that it means there won't be a big flood next time, but, but that's God's sign of his love, of his mercy, of his faithfulness, of the fact that he will give us eternal, has given us eternal life through Jesus Christ. And of course, this uh, covenant foreshadowed God's greatest act of mercy. And of course, his greatest act of mercy was in sending his son. Uh, there are so many passages that relate to that. Of course, the whole New Testament is full of them. But one passage I thought that would fit right here, Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. 
And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God sent the law so that people would see how sinful they really were. They would have a measure by which to measure their lives. But God knew we couldn't live up to that law, so he gave us his grace through Jesus Christ. And to me, every time, you know, I, I think of the rainbow, I, I think of, that means all of this. That rainbow not only promises no flood, but it promises eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, the rainbow is not a common feature described in Scripture. In fact, other than this passage, it's only mentioned three other times in Scripture, and I've given them to you at the bottom of your outline there. Let me just read those passages very, very quickly here. Uh, Ezekiel, first chapter, verse 28. Now, he's talking about the throne of God. Back up in verse 26, uh, he's talking about an expanse that was over their heads and, and the throne like lapis lazuli in appearance and so on down. And then in verse 28, he kind of wraps up this description. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and then he heard a voice speaking. And ultimately that voice will say, Thus says the Lord. And the message will be given to the prophet. The rainbow is associated with the throne of God. Now, obviously, the rainbow is there to, to, to demonstrate something of the radiance of God, but also, of course, to mask him, because human eyes have never looked upon God in his fullest glory. And the passages in Revelation, at least the fourth chapter, uh, is similar. Again, John is describing a, a situation in heaven like Ezekiel was. And in the verse, third verse, he says, And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, talking about the, the, the green and the red. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And many feel probably what he was saying here is the term emerald, uh, as it was used in antiquity, this probably referred to quartz. And, and quartz, of course, can form a prism through which the light is, is scattered into the colors of the spectrum. And so he's looking at this, this beautiful rainbow that is around, a corona, if you will, around the throne of God. I don't think any of us have even begun to behold in this life even a fraction of the beauty we're going to see as we move into God's presence. And we'll understand. You know, you've all heard of, of people who have the capacity to, uh, to taste something and they see a color? A certain taste is on their tongue and a certain color comes into their mind? I, it doesn't happen to me, but some people have been cross-wired. And uh, <laughs> as a result, they, they smell things that they see 
and they have colors in their mind of taste and things are like that. Well, I think when we get to heaven, it's going to be like that. Boy, you see a color and you're going to taste it and hear it and smell it and everything else. You know, it's going to be a full sensation of, of God's presence. And, and this is just a glimpse. Over in the 10th chapter, verse 1, this is a little bit different. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. Now this, this of course, is a description of an angelic being, and the, the, the rainbow can be explained here at least two ways. First of all, the radiance that was coming forth from him, shining through the cloud, produced the rainbow effect, and or simply coming from the presence of God, he radiated something of God's glory, just as Moses did when he came down off the mountain and he put a veil over his face to begin with at least so that people could look upon him without the radiance of God blinding their eyes. So this angel has something of the corona of God as he appears to John in this revelation. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 9. We're going to look at the last year's of Noah's life and some very, very fascinating uh, and somewhat hard things which uh, show up in that particular passage.